Psalm 93 is my, uh, well, one of my go-to psalms if I'm visiting somebody in the hospital. Uh, It opens, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established and secure. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. In other words, uh, God is in control. God has always been in control. Uh, Things are okay. Things are stable. We can trust God is uh, in charge. However, it goes on. Verse 3. The seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. So this means there is trouble afoot. So like the, um, like the Egyptians and the Phoenicians and the Greeks, the, the Jews were not seafaring people. If you have been uh, to the Holy Land, you know that it is um, very, very unique. There's a sense in which God prepared uh, a special people for the land, but he also prepared a very special land for the people. So if you were to, uh, if you were to just take a cross-section uh, of Israel, which is a very tiny land uh, mass, but you have four very distinct zones. So r- along the Mediterranean, you have this narrow strip, uh, and it's, it's uh, narrow today. It's wider today than it was in biblical times. They've, they use a lot of engineering to sort of... Um, push the the water out, but uh, this just doesn't factor into the biblical story. Zone one along the Mediterranean doesn't factor into the biblical story because this is the only passageway, navigable land passageway between Europe, Africa, and Asia. So whoever controlled the trade generally out of Europe controlled this little passageway. It just doesn't count in the biblical story. Then you go up in, onto the, this big mountain, this big piece of limestone. Uh, this is the land, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. People think the land flowing with milk and honey, and they picture New Zealand, but if you've been there, you know, it's not New Zealand. Most of it is very dry, very brown, very hot. And there's no really, there's no, there's very little natural water here to drink. And then, so zone one, very narrow, zone two, big, big rock. Zone three goes down to the lowest point on the planet, not covered in water. And at the bottom of that is the Dead Sea. So if you go to Israel, you usually go to the Dead Sea. And as you're approaching the Dead Sea, which is dead, by the way, it's like 30% salt. As you approach the Dead Sea, there's all these signs as you're driving down from Jerusalem, you're driving down, down, down. And it says, you know, have a cup of coffee at the lowest uh, cafe uh, on earth or have your picture taken at the lowest spot on earth, right? And this is a fault. It's a deep fault. There's like 150 uh, measurable, not detectable to humans, but 150 little seismic activities every day. It makes the San Andreas Fault look like a crack in the sidewalk. So you go all the way down and you get the Dead Sea and then you come up a little bit and you've got, uh, you get the desert. So all that to say, uh, because zone one, which is up against the Mediterranean, is not controlled by the Jews, the Jews don't really do water in the Old Testament. They don't, they don't spend a lot. Of, there are exceptions. Of course, there's the, there is uh, the Jordan River, and there is, uh, there is uh, the Jordan. And so there's, there is, um, 
yeah, there's some fishing and there's some people that swim, but not many. And so what you see throughout the Bible is, by and large, the Jews do not like uh, water. And when they talk about um, the seas have lifted up, the, the Lord, the seas have lifted up their voice, the seas have lifted up their pounding waves. That's code for we've got trouble. Uh, there's white water. There's storms at, at sea. This is bad. And so throughout the Bible, you see, you know, in Genesis, you've got uh, the Spirit of God is hovering over this chaotic uh, sea, and it's got to separate the land from the, uh, from the sea, and it's bad. In Exodus, God delivers the people through the water. In the, in the New Testament, you see that um, uh, baptism is, is symbolic of death going into the water, right? Because this, again, is just not sort of their first, uh, their first love. And then um, Revelation 21, um, it says, and this is John in seeing into heaven. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And the first thing he says, this is supposedly this heaven is great. Heaven is great. New heaven and new earth. And behold, there was no more sea. And what that's code for is uh, no more trouble. There's, there's no more pain. There's no more bad stuff happening. Um, those of us um, who enjoy sailing are hoping that's all very metaphorical, but um, I digress. I share all of this, Psalm 93, to say some of you are experiencing a bit of white water lately. Be assured, Psalm 93 pivots back and we get this reminder. Starts, God is in control, God is firmly anchored, everything is under control, then the sea is lifted up. The sea is lifted up, O Lord. The sea is lifted up its mighty waves. We got white water. We got trouble. And then uh, verse 4, mightier than the thunder of the great waves or great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your statutes, Lord, stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days. In other words, God is bigger than, stronger than uh, everything that's going wrong. He's got everything under control. So, uh, again, I reference these, this passage, Psalm 93, um, because I use it in the hospital, but I, I reference it because some of you are experiencing some white water. Um, you need to be assured that God remains firmly in control. You need to be assured that he is uh, mightier than the breakers of the sea, whatever that means for you at this particular moment. I'm not making any astute observations when I point out that it's rough out there and that there's lots of things going wrong. Uh, now, I, again, I, I always want to qualify this and say we're having very different experiences uh, during this last two years. We're all going through the same storm, right? COVID and racial tension and, and all kinds of other challenges that continue to roll out. Now it's supply chain and the, the economy and inflation and other things. But we're all sort of in the same storm, but we're in very different uh, boats at the moment. And some uh, have no boat and are really getting uh, tossed about and others uh, are doing quite well. Um, so it's not news for me to say that it's a challenging season and some of you are really being challenged. Um, look, if I needed to, <laughs> I could make 
some observations about the fact that suicide rates have never been higher uh, and that uh, many people uh, have lost friendships. Many people are estranged with family members. This is particularly challenging and egregious as we prepare to head into Thanksgiving where it will be um, in some settings very tense because of conversations about whatever, conversations about race or politics or COVID or the vaccine or uh, all kinds of other things. So I'm not telling you anything new when I say that the ambient anger index is high. But perhaps I am telling you something new when I note that uh, you have been commanded, if you're a Christ follower, you and I have been commanded to be joyful in hope. Joyful in hope. So this is the second of three-week series out of Romans chapter 12. And uh, Romans is an incredible book. Uh, it was written by Paul, the sort of superstar, young, zealous uh, Pharisee, uber-religious guy. He was on the fast track to be one of the, you know, the most important Jewish leaders in the entire nation. And at that point, uh, Jesus knocks him down, sort of literally, uh, Paul is on the road to Damascus. He is uh, he's going there to persecute Christians. He's going there to try and shut down the Jews that are converting and becoming Christ followers. And while he is going there, Jesus uh, appears to him, blinding light. Paul is knocked down. He is blinded. And uh, he discovers that the, uh, that, that the one he has been persecuting is, in fact, the Messiah that he has been waiting for. And um, so after all of this happens, uh, the Holy Spirit is going to uh, guide and direct him. There's sort of the initial conversion, and then uh, he will be, he will be uh, taken in by some Christians, and he is going to be, um, he is going to be disabused of his ideas that the way we are right with God is um, is by being good and by keeping the law and by being, you know, Pharisees. Uh, and he is going to learn about the gospel. So he is going to learn that we are saved on the basis of God's gift to us, that, that Christ's death in our place is what's going to change everything, and we don't earn God's love. We are not lovable. God is the hero of this story. He loves in spite of who we are. He sends his son, and his son dies in our place, and we don't earn. We receive. We need to receive. We need to accept. We need to be uh, adopted into the family of God. We need to confess our sins. We need to be born again. So Paul's going to learn all this, and then in this ultimate irony, uh, this zealous, uh, the most Jewish of Jews in that time is going to become the apostle, uh, the advocate, the missionary, the lead dog in taking this message to the Gentiles. And so he, that's going to be uh, the second two-thirds of the book of Acts. Uh, Paul's converted, I think it's Acts chapter 9, and then uh, we go through Acts chapter 28, and Paul becomes sort of the hero of the 
know, Paul becomes the, the protagonist of the story. The Jesus and the Holy Spirit, um, God the Father, are the heroes of the story. But Paul sort of eclipses Peter at that point in terms of getting most of the ink. And we follow Paul as he takes the gospel and he spreads it, uh, going around planting these churches. And among the things that he does is he writes letters to the churches that he has been to. And he writes uh, a particularly long letter to a church that he's not been to, but it's mostly sort of a Gentile congregation. And so he's the guy, and he writes this long uh, letter to the church in Rome. And uh, so this is an amazing book. It's some people's favorite book. It's sort of the book that, you know, really is going to get the attention of Augustine and uh, Luther and Calvin. I mean, all these people are going to say, oh my goodness, the book of Romans is uh, the key book. So, when we get to Romans chapter 12, which is where we're at, we're in this three-week series between the renewal stuff that we've been doing uh, so far in the fall and Advent, so the, the march up to uh, the celebration of the incarnation, Christmas, all of that. So we have three weeks in there, and we're, we're doing this study out of Romans chapter 12, which is sort of the overarching passage for this year and this theme of renewal. Um, and so we are now, last week the campus pastors looked at, um, uh, I think it was verses like three through eight, and we are now, I'm doing um, verses nine through 13 and uh, drilling down on verse 12. So what we get to when we get to Romans chapter 12, especially the part that I'm going to read to you, is um, we sort of pivot out of um, theory into some very specific directives. And so the book becomes uh, profoundly prescriptive, uh, and it's going to read that way. So I am reading now Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another. In love, honor one another above yourself. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. So uh, there, is, there is more, as I said, a lot of directives. Uh, <laughs> it reminds me, um, this section reminds me a little bit of, of Proverbs in terms of sort of the rapid fire commands. And, uh, and I, I made this joke years ago uh, that, that reading Proverbs can feel a little bit like being trapped uh, in a car with your mom on a long ride. So uh, let me just say, uh, hi, mom, <laughs> not you. So last time I told that joke, uh, I did get called out, and uh, I had to say, no, that was a joke and in poor taste. So not about me being trapped in a car with my mom, but perhaps you being trapped in a car with your mom. So there's just a lot of advice coming very rapid fire. Um, let's just pull this apart here uh, verse by verse. Uh, and then we're going to drill down on, on verse 12. So, love must be sincere. Uh, the word sincere uh, in English comes from the Latin uh, sine sera, and that means uh, literally no wax. 
So there used to be uh, that sign that would advertise if, if there was a piece of pottery uh, and it, it less than reputable dealers would maybe have a, a pot that had cracks in it, but they would seal the cracks with wax and then paint over it and you couldn't tell. And uh, this meant that, the, that this pot was of much less value because eventually the wax is gonna, uh, is gonna fall away and the pot's gonna be worthless. And so if, if you were advertising that there was no wax, uh, sincere, it was, it was as uh, understood. It's not fake or misleading. So love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Um, Okay, I think we know what this means. Hate is not the opposite of love. That would likely be apathy. Uh, and evil is not, in one sense, evil is not the opposite of, of good. Evil is sort of broken, um, corrupted good. And um, so hate what is evil, cling to what is good. I, I, I get the image of being in that, that sea, being in a storm and clinging to the life raft, holding on to it as if your life depended upon it. Verse 10, be devoted uh, to one another in love. We do not, you do not, you will not get through this thing uh, on your own, right? We are not, we were not created to be on our own. We were created in the image of a God who has always existed in community. Uh, honor one another. Just same idea. Honor one another above yourselves. So let me just pause here and say this is <laughs> this is a shocking, scandalous statement, and uh, I want to be sure you're traumatized by it. Uh, very counterintuitive. In the Bible, uh, we are told that as we grow in maturity, we should be sacrificing our good, our freedom, our rights for others. This is not talked about very much. And today, instead, today what we hear is all kinds of discussions about how we need to protect our rights. And look, this is a complicated conversation. I, I don't want to suggest otherwise. But I just want to say that it's... Um, when we go to listen to Jesus, or um, in this case, uh, Paul, uh, we don't hear protect your rights. We hear serve sacrificially on behalf of others. And uh, so Jesus didn't spend time telling us uh, to, to fight for our rights. Again, this is complicated, and I'm not suggesting that's the final word on how we're to understand all the, the, the dynamics of what's going on. But I do want you to see, uh, we are told to honor others above ourselves. We are told to be a living sacrifice, which is, again, itself, it's a, it's a, it's a shocking term. I mean, a sacrifice is dead. So we're to be a living dead thing. Um, Jesus is saying here is, I, I want you to, you know, sort of die to self, pick up your cross, follow me. And that looks like caring more for others than you do about yourself. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Uh, and then we get the, the, the verse that I'm, I'm going to come back to here in a second. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and uh, faithful in prayer. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Now again, 
goes on. We'll come back next week and, and continue. There's just a lot more of these kinds of very specific, do this, do this, do this, do this. It, it can be a little overwhelming. I want to come back to this idea of being joyful in hope. How do we do that? I mean, I think most of us would like to be joyful, <laughs> more joyful. So how exactly in the middle of a global pandemic, in the middle of all the, the struggles and the, and the frustrations and the setbacks and the, the disappointments of, the, of this season, how exactly would, do we live or do we think or what do we do in order to be joyful in hope? Well, uh, there's two uh, key words here in Greek. Uh, charis is the Greek sort of cognate for joy, and then uh, LPD is uh, the word for hope. Uh, and there's really, best I can tell, my, uh, my studies the last couple weeks, there's nothing there that is different than what you would uh, expect, than what you understand. The NIV reads, be joyful in hope. The ESV encourages us to rejoice in hope. Uh, the Living Bible says, be glad for all that God has planned for you. The message tells us that we should be cheerfully expectant. I mean, all these, basically, they're just, they're, they're saying the same thing. Uh, I don't think there's uh, a lot of, um, there's a lot of, of surprises that we get if we pull this out of the Greek. So, what are we being told to do? Or how is it that we pull off this joy? Uh, one of the things that uh, I remember, I was told this 30 years ago, uh, maybe even longer, uh, by Earl Palmer, who is a pastor uh, in Seattle. And uh, he said that uh, pastors only have uh, two or three messages. He says a good pastor might have five, but nobody has more than five. And by that he didn't mean that, you know, we're preaching the same, exact same message uh, over and over and over, we're recycling talks. Um, I would never do that. <laughs> Some people might. No. But that's not what he's talking about. What he was saying is that there are uh, themes, there are, um, I don't know, there are ruts, there are, uh, there are, uh, there are, there are aspects of the, of the book that, that resonate with certain people, and so you hear that because it's what they're most excited about or what they're working on, whatever. So if you were to ask me what I think my two or three uh, big themes are, I hope uh, that one of them would be uh, the, the uniqueness, the amazement, the, the power of Jesus and the gospel. Uh, that, you know, Christianity is not this I do, uh, it's this he did, that it would be about grace, it would be, it would be the central message of, of the book. I hope <laughs> that would be uh, one of the ones that you would say that I hammer on, like a uh, little Johnny One Note. Secondly, uh, I suspect there would be some, um, some word that you would pick up on that talks about my uh, repetition of pressing on. 
of being resilient, of getting back up and doing it again, uh, of, of not accepting, you know, failure. And then I suspect there also would be uh, something about the importance of eternity because eternity changes everything and uh, that we need to live today in light of the fact that we're going to live forever and that that, that changes everything. So uh, perhaps there are others, you know, the uniqueness of Jesus, the call to serve. Um, I don't know, I could go back and, um, and look and say, well, I talk a lot about the fact that you own your own spiritual growth and that, uh, you know, the church can help, but whatever. So I share all that to say a, a couple of those themes actually uh, are found in this command to be joyful in hope. So uh, if you've been here for any length of time, you probably have heard me go after this point. Uh, I say, uh, uh, I think there's sort of four little subpoints that I, that I run down when I start talking about this. The first is to recognize that there's a difference between joy and happiness. Uh, the, the terms are used a little bit more interchangeably in the New Testament than, than I thought initially, but there's a sense in which joy is much deeper. Joy grows out of a, a life rightly lived. Happiness tends to be a little bit more. Things are going in the right direction. Uh, and so we're, we can be, all that, we can be joyful. Um, we can be joyful uh, in difficult times. It's hard to be happy in difficult times. A second thing that I, that I try and distinguish between is hope and optimism. Now, if you just go to, a, you know, if you just go to Webster's Dictionary, you're going to be confused. And that's because, uh, that's because they're going to de describe hope differently than biblical hope. So hope, the way the word is, is used in, uh, uh, in common vocabulary is, is almost that we desire something but we don't expect uh, to get it. I hope uh, I got an A on the final. Uh, I hope, uh, whatever, I win the lottery. Very unlikely since I don't play, but I hope, like it's, it's almost like I don't expect it to happen, but I would really love for it to happen. So that's not the way the word hope is used in Scripture. Hope in Scripture is, uh, is faith in Jesus, and it's, and it's certain. It's, it's, it, it, it rests on the person and the work and the character and the promises of God. So it is, it is rock solid. We don't, have to, we don't have to wonder about those things. We can be certain. And so the distinction when we're talking about uh, joyful in hope is, is different than you might think. And optimism, by the way, optimism is sort of a, I mean, optimism gets used two ways. Some people are just naturally inclined to think the best. Uh, so we say they're optimistic as opposed to pessimistic. Or, or you can say, I'm optimistic this is going to work out. I've looked at the trends. You know, we're up, we're up uh, you know, 14 to 3 at halftime, so I'm optimistic that we're going to win the game because it looks like we're the better team. We, I've got some data to suggest it's not just a blind based on absolutely nothing. So, so optimism is different. Hope, when we're being told to be joyful in hope, 
We're, we're being told to be joyful in Jesus. We're being told to be joyful in what Christ has done. We're being told to be, to, be, to be encouraged by the fact that our sins have been forgiven and that we gain eternal life. We're told to be encouraged by the fact that, that, that we're going to live forever in a world that works. Uh, that, that, that there will be no more pandemics, no more cancer, no more unemployment, no more inflation. Right? These things get fixed in the kingdom of God. So we're being told that we should be encouraged right now and, and have a deep sense of peace right now because we are confident in the promises of God on our behalf. So... If you have heard me talk about this, you have heard me say, okay, you have to understand uh, the distinction between joy and happiness. You have to understand the distinction between hope and optimism. And I would also, with some regularity, say, hey, just look up and recognize that a whole lot of things are going well. I mean, good night. Yes, there are, there are struggles, and I don't want to belittle any of you. I know some of you are struggling in significant ways with significant real challenges. But a lot of the things that we can get sideways on are just first world problems. And uh, most anybody in the history of the world and most anyone anywhere on the planet would trade places with us for all the many blessings and uh, privileges and all the good things that are going on. So if you've been around, you've heard me make uh, those points. Um, and also, by the way, the, uh, an important one that gratitude is a skill that we can learn, that we cultivate joy by, by directing our thoughts and by anchoring them in the hope of Christ and by re rehearsing our blessings and learning, uh, be still in my soul and praise God and look at God and look at his benefits. We, we, have, to, we have to work at that and not everybody does. So if you have been around, you've heard me make those points with some frequency. Is there anything new here in Romans chapter 12, um, verse 12? Well, um, it, it just goes a little bit deeper along those same points. So we notice here that um, joy is to be rooted in that hope, that, that hope is the, the soil uh, that we are to uh, we are to be established in. It's the ground where joy grows. So uh, this is not uh, new. It's not even new in Romans. Romans chapter five makes the, the same point. Uh, we're told uh, through Christ we have also obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So uh, it's 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 just a it's a re reiteration of the same idea that the joy we're after uh, grows out of hope. What we're being told, uh, what we're being promised is that though lots of things in this world may be going wrong, that we can have joy and that joy is found in Jesus. And it's found in the certainty that comes with Jesus. And it is found in the idea of all that he has secured for us in his kingdom and in the world to come. So 
what I want to suggest for you as, um, as I land the plane here are a, a couple very specific things that you might be working on uh, this week as we begin uh, sort of the long slide into Thanksgiving. Um, so I think there's, there's just a couple things that you can be alert to that will help. Number one, I want to encourage you to fight any sense of entitlement. Do not let a sense of entitlement uh, push aside the gratitude that you should be feeling. We often uh, take God's uh, blessings to us for granted, uh, as if we deserve them, as if we are owed them. No. Now, this is, this is shocking news to you, perhaps, but what we deserve, according to Scripture, as sinners, what we deserve is death. What we deserve is separation from God. What we deserve is, is, is the wrath of God. Right? I mean, we, this is not the way people think today. But you need to understand, although you are amazing and you are wonderful and you have been made in the image of God and you have great value and you are deeply loved, you and I are deeply fallen. And we, we might think what we want is justice. We don't want justice. I don't want justice. I want grace. I want the mercy of God. There is, a, I've been working on this history podcast for uh, a year now, and I continue to sort of read broadly about events. And it's, there's just big differences in societies based on whether or not people think they're good and deserve, <laughs> or people are a little bit more sober-minded about their goodness and, uh, and their assumptions, and they recognize uh, the goodness of God, and they're a little more sober-minded. So, first thing, fight any sense of entitlement. Second thing, count your blessings. So, look, just, this is your assignment for today. Make a list of 20 things that you have to be thankful for. I mean, just do it. Make a list of 20 things today that you had to be thankful for. And then set that list aside. And if that does, if that works, and it's, it's not rocket science, but it works. If that works, then add to the list on Monday. <laughs> and add to the list on Tuesday. And develop the skill of gratitude. The final thing that I'll say, and I'll just, I'll, I'll go quickly. Don't compare Stop comparing. Comparison is such a fatally flawed exercise. We compare from a distance. We don't really know what's going on in a person's life. It's all selective. We, we can compare and feel good. We can compare and feel bad. Don't compare other than to compare your life with that of Jesus and to realize how God is uh, very gracious and merciful to us. So I want to encourage you in the midst of all the things that are going wrong, I want to say to you, promise you, you can be joyful in hope when you are focusing on Jesus and the promises that come our way because of who he is and what he's done on our behalf. Heavenly Father, may we be people who uh, represent you more um, 
graciously and effectively than we tend to. May we be people who are shaped by Romans 12. May we be people who are committed uh, to loving and serving other people and to go out of our way to, to be that kind of, um, to adopt that kind of sacrificial attitude that we see in Christ. And may we be people who are resilient in the joy that comes out of uh, the promises, the hope, uh, the work of Jesus Christ. Guide and direct us to that end. May we be agents of uh, peace and goodwill and your love and the gospel as we move through this month of November. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.